Welcome to From a Woman to a Leader, a podcast dedicated to discussing the challenges and providing tips for women in tech leadership. Hi, I'm your host, Limor Bergman-Gross, and in each episode, we'll hear from other successful women in tech, sharing their stories, insights, and advice. Join us as we empower each other to reach our full potential in the tech industry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From a Woman to a Leader. And today, I'm super excited to host Victoria Pelletier. Or Pelletier. Sorry if I mispronounce your name, Victoria. And today, we're going to talk about driving transformational change, strategies for success in tech leadership. But first, before we dive in, let me introduce Victoria. So Victoria is a senior executive, C-suite transformational leader, and passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. Her journey has been marked by resilience, overcoming adversity, and relentless pursuit of excellence. And Victoria, hopefully you're going to share with us today some insights about her experiences, strategies for driving transformational change, and succeeding in tech leadership. So hi, Victoria. How are you today? Hello, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. I know you're super busy, so thank you for finding the time. And I usually like to start talking with my guests about your background, kind of sharing a little bit to our audience, your background, your experiences, and what have shaped your resilience and leadership style. Sure. Well, I don't know how much time we have, but uh, <laughs> I'll do my best to keep it concise. So I would describe myself from a career perspective first for your audience, and the title is about leadership. As a career-long corporate executive, I have been a C-suite executive for over 20 years now. And some of the pieces of advice I give is around following you know, your passion and recognizing that it's okay to pivot and I think I'm a great example of that. I had planned to be a lawyer from the time I was a child, but while I was in university, I worked in a bank in operations and got promoted into leadership really quickly. And that's where I found part of my joy and passion around being a leader and taking on greater and greater complex problems. And I got recruited out of the banking environment to be the chief operating officer for an outsourcing company or BPO, business process outsourcing at age 24. It was a pretty big stretch role for me. I was a new mom and I was moving from leading primarily operations to all of a sudden leading all aspects of this organization except for finance. And so again, stretch role for me needed to lean pretty heavily on a team, the team that was there and, and build some others within. And if you were to look at my LinkedIn profile, a lot of people will say like, I don't like, it looks like it's kind of all, maybe I shouldn't say all over the place, but think about some people don't understand the tangential connection. From there, what I realized in coming out of banking was into a business-to-business -business environment is that there's even greater added complexity in serving different constituents now, corporate clients and either their employees or customers that you support, as well as the own shareholders you have in your organization. So I've stayed ever since that since that point in B2B professional services, consult to operate with technology always as the enabler. And then what I will say around leadership that's also evolved and changed 
as a woman in leadership and being the youngest at the table, being part of the LGBT community, I felt I needed to also show up in a very certain way. And so that was no emotion, no vulnerability, all business all the time. And although I was very successful in business, my leadership lacked. It was not, I don't think I was showing up as the kind of leader I would have wanted to work for. So I had to pivot and shift and do things and lean into things that weren't as natural or comfortable, or I was afraid would make me seem weak. And that is being authentic, being vulnerable, sharing more of who I was, becoming what I I refer to now as a human-centered leader who's radically candid with my team. You know, I'm still direct, but from a place of care and compassion, but build really trusted, authentic relationships with people in the business. Yeah. Wow. And you have such an inspiring journey and uh, I will put your LinkedIn URL at the episode so people can see your journey. And it's very impressive how how quickly you were able to get to very executive roles. What do you think, you know, were the contributors for that? I think there was a number of things. So the first, I, I think I've always had a really strong focus on performing. I, you know, I, I come from like really humble, very not amazing or like roots. And so for me, I was determined I'm going to be better than the biology or the circumstance that I was born into. My, my mom said to me at one point, I think I was a 10 or 11 years old. She's like, Tori, you need to do better than us. And she meant socioeconomically education vocationally, because my mom was a secretary and my dad was a school janitor. And so for me, I wanted to perform, I wanted to do well. And so for me, it was understanding how success is measured and what do I need to do to be successful in any role that I've been in? What skills do I need? Understanding metrics and ensuring I was delivering against those. So the fact that I've been able to perform and deliver results successfully for the companies I've worked for is very is kind of the table stakes, if you will not sitting on like past performance, recognizing that I need to continue to like have this incredible propensity to grow and develop new skills. And particularly now when we look at the world of like technology and like the digital transformation and the shortening life of skills period. And so, you know, continuing to learn and improve myself. And then I would also say that focus on, on personal brand. I don't think I had the vernacular 20 something years ago, yet I recognize as I look back now, I was really focused on building not only the organizational brand when I sat in these C-suite roles, but those of myself as well. But, you know, as we move, I moved it from business to consumer businesses to B2B. We know that people do business with people they like and trust and want to do business with. So making sure people understand who the whole person was and who they were going to be, you know, having lead, you know, their, their engagement, lead the team or, or even personally engaging as, as their trusted partner. So building a really strong personal brand. And then I think that the extension of that is a really strong network. So that early role um, I got because I performed well, I happened to have experience. The BPO company had large financial services clients, and that had been my background and I had been running contact centers. So I ticked a lot of the boxes the other, I had a strong brand in terms of my ability to deliver. And the other piece is around a level of confidence. I can tell you, I was shaking in my boots around taking that stretch role because I didn't have all of the experience that I needed to do it. And I'm not a fan of fake it till you make it, except when it comes to the brave face and the confidence that we have in leveraging what skills and experiences we ha- we do have 
in showing up in a new environment. Yeah, uh, definitely. So branding is uh, super important. So many women are not doing that enough, unfortunately. Uh, I want to talk about the emotion stuff. You, you mentioned at the beginning, you were kind of uh, trying to bury emotions, right? To, to, to not utilize them. Can you share a little bit about that and how that evolved? Yeah, yeah. I am, um, you know, my, my best friend, her nickname for me is Turtle. And that's just because, you know, part of my, my life's philosophy or mantra is about being unstoppable, no excuses. I've overcome lots of like adversity and challenge. And one of the ways I think in my earlier years, I learned to deal with that, maybe not the healthiest way to be resilient. And so I've modified my level, like healthy level of resilience now, but was to compartmentalize and put emotion aside and just move forward. When I stepped into these leadership roles, and even that first one, I was, as I said, 24 years old, I was the only woman in senior leadership, and I was the youngest by probably two decades at that point. So not only did I have imposter syndrome because it was a stretch role for me, I knew that as a woman, the only woman at the table and being so young, I I believed there was this expectation for how I was going to show up. And I thought that being vulnerable and showing any kind of emotion would demonstrate weakness. And so I didn't. And not that I didn't have great, still good relationships with people and built, you know, camaraderie, but a lot of the really close connection comes through vulnerability and authenticity. And so I actually, for years, operated in the environment and I had to make some really difficult business decisions, talking about like success and performance for the business. But I learned that I had a nickname of the Iron Maiden. Um, wow. and, um, and I was like, holy, like I, I want, I want people to want to work with me, want to follow me and not fear me. And if this is how people view me, like people's perception is rea their reality. And so clearly there was something I needed to do differently. So for me, I needed to like critically evaluate the woman that faced me in the mirror and say like, what is it? What do I need to do differently and do better? And that I recognized I had to actually start to show the whole person, the, the turtle comment and nickname is that, you know, tough exterior, but super mushy marshmallow inside. Cause I'm actually a highly emotional person. I feel deeply. And so I needed to show some of that to the people that I was working with. Even if I had to make tough decisions, I wanted them to understand not only the context behind which I needed to make those decisions, but in some cases how difficult it was and that I would support them. And I understood their emotions as well. And so starting to even just have a conversation about emotions, starting to even do things like I'm an A-type personality and I was ready to jump into a meeting, straight into the agenda, no kind of rapport building. And even that had to change, right? Like we're we're humans who, who are working with other humans here. So yeah. let, let's build this very different, you know, relationship with one another. And then it got to the point where as I coached and mentored more and more people, I also recognized I did a disservice in not sharing more of who I am and what my lived experience was in terms of that contributing to maybe my drive from a career perspective and helping them as they were charting out their own. Yeah. And this is so difficult to balance, to find the right balance, because a lot of times, at least, you know, based on my personal experience and women that I coach, um, when you are showing emotions, especially if you're in a very male dominant environment, a lot of ego, you know, kind of people are trying to, everyone is trying to show how successful they are. And if you show emotion, that can uh, be held against you. 
Yeah. Uh, and how do you find the right balance? I mean, on, on one hand, you want to be seen as strong, assertive, you know, business oriented. On the other hand, you don't want to, you know, um, seen as an Iron Maiden. So how do you balance that? Well, and what's really interesting is it's, it goes to the other end of the scale as well. So I'm a very strong personality. I am very opinionated and the confidence I've, I have no problem showing up and, and speaking my mind, particularly when I, when I, when I understand the content and I have fact, I don't like to you know speak if I don't. So for me that when you talk about balance, it's not only the, you know, the balance of what's the right level of emotion and connection. I want to build relationship with people but then I've always been mindful that I come across, I can come across, you know, very strong. And in women, you know, what you said, assertive, and I like that word, but instead we get labeled as aggressive or bitchy or whatever other, you know, yeah. word you want to use. So it has been this balance of recognizing the audience around me. Honestly, I'll tell you, I think as I've matured and gained more confidence in my own skin, I care a lot less about that. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to build the right kind of relationships. And when the emotion is appropriate, I'm going to show it. I'm going to have a conversation. But also reciprocally, I'm not going to hold myself back from speaking up because I'm afraid that I might be viewed as being too strong or too male presenting. Yeah, but for that, you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself. And most of the women that they coach, even women in very exec in executive roles, a lot of them don't have enough confidence in themselves. So can you share kind of, you know, how did you build that? Con because you really need to be confident to, to be able to show vulnerability, to show emotions, but on the other hand, to be assertive, to stand for yourself. I, um, I think it's a, it's a little bit like a, like a muscle that, and you need to, you know, develop some skills and practice to gain the confidence. So for me, I, I haven't always been confident. I lived in fear of, you know, being rejected, of being not good enough. And so, but I, I knew how to wear the mask. So I outwardly, I appeared as though I had much more confidence than I did at one, at one point. And I needed in interior confidence to match exterior. So for me, some of the things I had to do was I said, I don't like to speak about, you know, things that I, I don't have knowledge about. So I will be silent in a room when I'm listening or I'm trying to gain fact and then form an opinion. But I try to educate myself so that I have confidence in what opinion or recommendation I'm going to be formulating. Second, as it comes to performance, I needed like kind of do it check. And this can even be building your own resume. I always tell people, you need to be really clear in recognizing and documenting the outcomes you've delivered and what successes you've had. And so reviewing that with myself, that, it, that gives me confidence in, oh, okay, if I'm going to interview for this new job, well, as I'm kind of taking stock on what I've done over the last number of years, I've had this, this, and this success, and I've had, you know, this kind of accolade or feedback. Well, that, that makes me feel, you know, quite, quite confident. And then I also think we need to lean into quite, quite frankly, into the things that do make us a little uncomfortable. And, and I'm sure you probably know some of this data and coaching women, women typically won't apply for roles unless they like think they have like yeah. eight and out of 10 skills, men do it with six on average. And, you know, so I think it's gaining confidence in 
even the tangentially related work that we've done. And again, those successes in terms of, and helping build the bridge yourself, that I think helps, you know, build a lot of the confidence to go for that next opportunity. Absolutely. And uh, this is very unfortunate that uh, women uh, do not apply to positions if they don't check, even not, I don't know if eight out of 10 or 10 out of 10, right? I mean, and we tend to be very self-critic on ourselves. And as you mentioned, like we need to stop and, and identify, okay, what have we achieved? What are the things that we accomplished? What difference did we make? Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to ask you, how did you face, I mean, you were you were a woman in, I assume, surrounded by men, also very young uh, and a mother. And how did you face those challenges? You know, I'm sure that there was a lot of bias there, right? I mean, uh, people that are 20 years or so older than you, how, if you want to share, you know, how how you face that, or if you have like examples of challenges that you faced. Yeah, I am. So as much as I say, like there's a muscle that gets built in, in how you develop confidence. I do actually think there's a little bit of DNA in there, you know, nature versus nurture. And I kind of think of like fight or flight. I'm a fighter. I think that's just nat- naturally in my, in my DNA. So I do think, although I've been able to learn some skills to gain confidence and stand in front of these male dominated audiences in rooms, there, there's a little bit that just sits in me that like just wants to, you know, go out there and like prove something. And, you know, so for me, it's been, I mean, I had an example a number of years ago, I was IBM, so technology organization, and I was leading the strategy for this, you know, one part of the business and walked in in preparation for our next fiscal year. And I walked into a pre-COVID, so big boardroom before going, everything going virtual. And it was myself and one other room, woman in the room and 40, four zero men. Wow. And, you know, and yeah, and yet I was the leader in here. And so I, I'm not going to say I did, I didn't notice, but I think I'm so accustomed to it that for me, like just, I just shake it off. Like I walk in and do what I'm going to do. It was the other woman in the room who later she and I had a conversation say, like, did you even notice? And I was like, yeah, actually, you know, now that you say that, and so there's just, you know, that's why a big part of the reason why I'm exceptionally committed and a massive advocate around diversity and inclusion as well. And the need to move the needle much more rapidly on, on a, all kind of diversity um, fronts. And so for me, I no longer let that intimidated me. It hasn't probably since that fir- first or, or second role in those first, you know, while I was in my twenties, if you will. And now it's going back to like, what am I here to do today? Either whether it's just, you know, the business that I'm leading, or even if it's just a meeting, what's the objective here today? And so I'm going to meet the objective, going back to my focus on like performance and wanting to do well, but I'm going to make sure I'm incredibly well-informed, even if that's about the other people around the table. So there's a significant amount of like research I do when I'm, you know, going into large meetings or I'm going to meet with, you know, new clients. And so for me, my ability to walk into those environments where I am maybe the only at the table is something I'm quite accustomed to, but I'm going to make sure I'm confident, I'm knowledgeable, and and I understand what the objectives are and just meet those. It sounds so easy when you say that, but I know it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
how can I, how can women really I mean you mentioned like your I know that you're passionate about diversity and inclusion how can women really adapt that mentality because it's really difficult I mean it sounds easy when you say it but it's it's difficult when you get into a room with 40 sometimes even less men but you're different uh, they there may be biases against you you may not be treated extremely well happened to me how how do you really lead out, out of that situation? I am. So I, well, there's, there's a number of things. So first of all, my role as a, I'll say as a leader, but the reality is I think we, our voices are power. So I think we all have the opportunity to speak up. So in those environments, you know, as a leader, I have the opportunity to change the diversity mix myself for the teams that I'm leading directly and something I've been really proud of. In fact, the last role I held at, at IBM, I had the most diverse team within the Americas. And so some of that was there before I, but I continue to foster and grow that. So as a leader, that's part of my accountability, but then also, you know, where I've used my voice as my power, I've used it for, you know, networking events that are really geared towards a male audience to speak up and say, that's, that's not a, appropriate. You know, there was a, you know, sales, like the top salespeople event at some point and spouses were in, so they were traveling somewhere and the spouses were to come, but this, the way it was written, it assumed the spouses were all women. Not the fact that one of the top performing salespeople could actually be a woman and have either a male or a female spouse who is going to attend. So it's saying, hold on a second, like let, let's evaluate some of these, you know, stereotypical ways of working Two, I have called out people, men who've spoken inappropriately to female or other colleagues. Now, some will say, because I'm, you know, a, a senior executive, I've earned the right to do that, but I will challenge that. I think we need to all speak up when we see something inappropriate. I remember this one person, he was a peer of mine. So not only did I have a conversation with him about how we was speaking and engaging with others, worse to women, but he did it with men also. But I also went to my leader, our shared leader, to say like, this is not appropriate and should not be accepted. And it was, you know, she was aware of the circumstance and sadly she wasn't prepared to take action on it. So my resulting response to that was great. Well, my team will never work on any engagements with him directly because I will not let them engage with and be spoken to by someone who's like that. Wow. That's bold. <laughs> yes. That's bold. Yeah. And to be honest, I have similar experiences of like those kind of microaggressions or inappropriate behavior. And I didn't get support as mm -hmm. well. And I had to find, sometimes I found allies, uh, but it was, wasn't always the case. And it's very difficult. And a lot of times, I mean, I didn't know what to do, whether to handle it in the meeting, but then I was afraid that I will be seen as, oh, why is she so combative, right? And assertive. So I usually took the strategy of handling those, you know, uh, just reaching out to the person directly and addressing that. What, what worked for you? It's, it's been a mix. And I do think you need to evaluate in the moment what is appropriate. And so in cases where there's been outright either discrimination or something that said in a meeting, I've like just spoken up immediately and said, let me just stop you there for a second. I'm pretty sure that that's not actually what you meant to say. And if so, like, I think we should reevaluate and, and maybe apologize to 
you know, person, so-and-so in the room, if it's like so blatant and that kind of thing, I have done that, but then there've been other moments where I've made the decision that now is not the time. There was one actually, and I was really shocked because it's in the last five or six years um, where there was a male who spoke to me. And I think some of it was a, a cultural, cultural aspect as well, not just a gender-based piece who spoke down to me so much. So I was like, I haven't been spoken to like that in 20 plus years. And I had team members in the room with me and I, and I had to go, like, this is not the time and place for me to address that. And yet people looked at me. And so there was eye contact, like others knew that this was inappropriate. And so they knew I acknowledged it, yet I didn't need to even say anything. And I later had a subsequent conversation with that individual. So I tell your listeners, I mean, you need to you know, do what's right for you and in, in the right context and environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because sometimes it can be held against us if we try to address it in the you know, when it happens in front of other people, but seems like you took kind of an approach of like your body language kind of showed that you're not okay with that without saying anything. And sometimes there's an opportunity to make, make a joke that's, you know, yeah, as well, which again is, you know, not being as, as you said, combative, you know, within the meeting, but it's clear and we can come back to it later. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about transformational change and if you can share some of the challenges you faced when managing operations during periods of intense transformational change. So one of the the reasons why I see large transformation, whether that's a digital transformation, whether that's like a merger acquisition or restructuring go wrong is poor change management. And, you know, that, that actually come, comes back significantly to leadership and the communication as well. And so actually you know, for, for me, actually, I spent most of my career, as I said earlier, in like B2B professional services. And the last many, many years have been doing large scale transformation programs for other clients. If my team was not part of the change management engagement, I actually suggested at certain companies, we increase our risk rating or contingency based upon that because there was likelihood for some elements to fail or not not be successful. So I've tried to make sure that's embedded directly in the transformation program. And then beyond that, it's again the leadership at the appropriate level within the organization. So I say leadership from the top, I think there's lots of decisions, whether it's a digital transformation being made by you know a CIO, CTO, or a business leader who then trusts others on the team that it's just going to get handled from there. But I think the communication needs to start from the top. There was one company you know, that it was a, a massive technology, uh, like modernization effort. And um, it caused such concern for the technologists, you know, a couple thousand technology people for this, you know, client. And what was embedded in, you know, into that was not only the type of communication at certain levels from different leaders and included as much transparency as possible. In this case, it was saying, yes, we are moving from this tech stack and this, this product suite to this. And that is materially going to change your jobs. And here's what we can tell you today around what that journey is going to look like in terms of not only the, the time to get there, but how we're going to bring you along that journey. And to the extent that you can, I get like, I've been through 18 mergers and acquisitions. You can't always like, can't always disclose completely what's happening, but to the extent that you can, you know, being incredibly uh, authentic and transparent in your communications, being dir direct and upfront, 
but then also trying to bring them on, you know, get them on the per proverbial bus. So in this case, that same example was saying to these technologists, like, we don't want to lose the institutional knowledge that sits with you and the experience you have. So not only as part of this transformation, are we committed to having you stay? Here's the reskilling of your tech skills that we're going to bring you along. And so then you look, the retention rate was exceptionally yeah. high because there's confidence level, you know, in the team, hearing that kind of message and understanding what that change journey was going to look like. This is an incredible example because uh, I've seen that so many times that executive leaderships prefer not to disclose information and it becomes just terrible, terrible, terrible culture and environment. People just start guessing and, and, and being afraid of what's going to happen. Anxiety rises. I mean, what you describe is like incredible that you were able to give those people also the opportunity and and making sure that they don't feel like they're going to be dismissed and not relevant anymore. Yeah. And I think you need to get ahead of it as quickly as possible. And, and so I think there's like multi-tiered sort of approach from a communication standpoint. I think of like lots of companies that we've acquired and for the acquired company, they're of course like, oh my God, am I going to lose my job? And so there's like, like, you need to get out immediately in front of it. Here's what we know. Here's what we can tell you. And then this is where as a senior leader, you start to bring this down in terms of how are you helping the other leaders, including the frontline leaders have a message with their team to ensure that there's confidence. What kind of like tools and education are you giving them? And then ultimately there's a whole heck of a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations because everyone's concerns and experience will create a very different, you know, challenge or fear potentially for others on the team. But how do you conduct those? I mean, if you're an exec, I mean, who do you talk to? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you you can't. I mean, that that's the challenge. As an executive, you need do need to leverage your team. But I think the senior executive needs to be at the front of the that whole conversation. This is why we've made the decision we've had. Here's what I can tell you around timing and impact. Here's the team, you know, and here, and here's what next steps look like. So, I mean, that needs to come from the senior leaders. And then, you know, they obviously are, you know, should be having conversations with their direct reports and there's probably skip levels. So, you know, they're, they might even do it with the next one, or even those high potential performers that we don't want to lose. We want to wrap our arm, arms around. They're having those conversations with, but then you need to arm and educate the other leaders to be capable of having similar type conversations with their team. Absolutely. And I found that uh, sometimes it's uh, it's uh, also very helpful to have like office hours. Like, okay, I conduct office hours. Anyone who wants to talk is welcome. I mean, there's obviously a limit to how many people you can talk to, but at least people feel you're, you're approachable to them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want to go back to the topic of women, right? And because that's what we're here for, to talk about women and, and women getting to executive roles. What advice would you would you give um, to, to women who want to get to the C-suite? What, what should they be focused on? I think there's a number of things that are important. So I've talked about skills and performance. I mean, it's, you need to deliver. Yeah. Um, for, again, as I said, I think that's the table stakes. You need to have an incredibly strong brand. And so I think, you know, we are all the CEOs of brand us, you, brand you. And so you need to curate, you know, the narrative. And, and when I think about personal brand, 
there's four elements to it. There is the subject matter expertise or the eminence for which you're you're known for. There's who you are as a, a human, the things that you value, your passion, passionate about. The next is what makes you different from others. So when you talk about getting to the C-suite, why, if you've got two people who've run two business units, you know, why, why choose person A versus person B? So it's, you know, th- those other elements, but also what, what makes you different. And then I think the last part of that, like, is what's the legacy and what do you want to be known for? So I, you know, tell the women listening, you need to curate, you need to develop the narrative of your brand on all of those things. And then is a precursor to developing a really strong network. So it is who you know. And so, you know, you do need to be incredibly intentional at building a network of those that, you know, will help coach you other C-suite women who've been there and who could say like, here's some things you need to be thinking about if you want to go in this particular industry or this particular function. Like, let me tell you what my journey was like. Let me give you some coaching. And then there's the the mentorship approach as well, which is a little bit along the, the coaching line. And then the last one is sponsors. But sponsorship for me can't be, I've worked in some companies where they tried to create a formalized sponsorship program. If I'm going to be your sponsor, it's my my name and my reputation on the line. So you you can't force or put someone, I'm going to choose to sponsor someone because I believe in their potential. I believe that they're strong performers and I believe they're good humans. And so they've built this really strong, you know, brand around them. And so, you know, you need to always be networking. There's a book called Never Eat Alone. My husband jokes because for him, he's like, it's, oh, I always eat alone for him because pre-COVID in particular, like I was always out lunches, yeah. after you know, dinner, there's black tie events, there's all these things. And so I do think that's really, really important. And then the other things that I would say is there's a level of resilience that has to come for sure with being in the C-suite and then this a creation of boundaries. And so for me, that's meant I have started to say no a long time ago, saying no to the things that didn't bring me personal or professional joy or value. And if there's still some things that just have to get done, so you can't always say no, but that case you delegate or you're outsource. Otherwise, I mean, for, for those who are chosen to be partners, who are chosen to be parents, or maybe even just have aged parents or other commitments, like there's a lot, it's all just life. And so I don't like talking about work-life balance. It's just life. And so how do we integrate it? And uh, so you need to get really effective at creating these boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so many tips. It's incredible. Thank you so much, Victoria. Before we end, I wanted to ask you, uh, how can or how should women reach out to you or connect with you? I have a personal website, which is victoria-peltier.com. I do a ton of public speaking and I publish content. All of it will be there, but also your audience if they want to connect with me on their favorite social platform, LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook, they'll get the links directly from that site as well. Perfect. I will make sure to put the link to your site. Thank you so much, Victoria, for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of From a Woman to a Leader. This is your host, Limor Bergman-Gross, and I want to encourage you to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Limor Bergman, and let me know. What do you think about the episodes? Feel free also to comment on Apple Podcasts and tell me what do you want me to talk about? Which guests do you want me to bring? I really appreciate that and have a wonderful day.